But I used to give extra maths lessons to supplement the, the bursary. And those lessons in those days paid seven rand an hour or 12 rand if I had two students in the class. And to put context in that, for seven rand, you certainly could buy a decent second growth. And for 12 rand, mm. you could buy a bottle of Lafitte and you could buy a bottle of Latash. Hello and welcome to the Ex-Animo Wine Co. podcast. I'm David Clark. Ex-Animo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, exanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we got to where we are today and where we're going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. Just a note, we are still in the middle of a government-enforced lockdown here in South Africa, where the sale and movement of wine is still forbidden. We are using the internet to record these podcasts, and it doesn't always behave. Apologies for any issues with the audio. I've tried to edit and make it as listenable as possible. Today on the podcast, we have Michael Fridgen. With his wine career now entering its sixth decade, Michael is one of the true doyens of the South African wine industry. His current interests are the Reciprocal Wine Company, an importer and retailer of fine wines, WineX, the biggest wine show in South Africa, which um, travels the entire country, the Old Mutual Trophy, one of the key wine competitions in South Africa. He writes on wine for numerous publications around the globe and has been the international voice of South African wine for a generation. Listening to Michael's experiences during the last 50 or so years was very beneficial for me. He references some key moments in South African history. The Sharpeville Massacre of 1960, where police shot dead 60 protesters, injuring many more. The Ravonia trial of 1963-64, which resulted in the life sentences of Nelson Mandela and others who were convicted of sabotage. And then President P.W. Bota's Rubicon speech of 1985, which doubled down on the government's apartheid policies and led to the collapse of the RAND. Michael is not a historian, and his recollections of these events are simply drawn from his own experiences. We had a fascinating chat, and I feel that we only scratched the surface of his knowledge and experience. While I wouldn't go as far as to say Michael is a controversial figure, he certainly holds unpopular opinions at times. These are usually very well thought out positions, whether you agree with them or not, so it makes for good conversation. Unfortunately, the medium we are using to record these podcasts, Zoom, for all its benefits, makes a fast-paced, interactive discussion very difficult. We talk across each other on the discussion about brands and pricing a little bit, and I'd like to explore that with him in more detail later today. Perhaps then we can meet face-to-face. In the meantime, I give you Michael Fridgen. I'm here with Michael Fridgen. Michael, hi, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks very well. For those um, you know, four people in wine in South Africa who don't know you, uh, maybe give us a brief introduction of who you are and what you do in wine and oh, it's not going to be that brief because you've got a long history, but uh, maybe chat to us about yeah, who you are and what you're doing in wine and, and maybe your journey thus far. Okay, and it was a pleasure. Well, I've been pretty much in wine since I was at school and I have to say that in those distant days, um, it was actually considered not uncivilised for scholars to have a glass of wine at school functions. So I remember our annual debating and dramatic society dinners, which took place at reasonably smart hotels, and wine was served to everybody. So I never grew up in an era or in a place of that kind of prohibition. My parents were particularly enlightened from my perspective. We were allowed to have wine pretty much as soon as we could walk, but it was highly diluted. 
in the early stages. And um, from, I guess, the age of five or six, we used to take our holidays in Mozambique. And it was a completely different culture to the South Africa of the 1950s. So firstly, um, kids were allowed into bars. There was, there was none of that sort of um, very Anglo-Saxon separation. And that was very true of South Africa in the 50s and 60s. You had to be 18 simply to go into a place where liquor was sold. We never had those problems in Mozambique. Um, we went into the bar with our parents. People drank wine with their meals. It tended in Mozambique of the, uh, certainly of the 50s, that the wine would have been Portuguese and would have been large demijohns of Vigno Verde, red or white. And all that was added to that was sparkling water for us as kids. So we grew up in that kind of environment. My parents liked wine. They would not have been hugely knowledgeable by the standards of today, but I think they were pretty knowledgeable by the standards of the era. And certainly when we were kids, there was a proper wine celery sort of place in which I guess my dad stored 100 or 200 bottles of wine. And wine was served certainly at least on weekends, probably not during the week. And we were allowed to have designated bottles. Right. My father was very clever. He made sure that at the age of eight or nine, when I thought that a bottle of Lieberstein, which would have been nice and sweet, would do perfectly for me, said it's your designated bottle. You can have a case of that and drink as much as you like. I very quickly gave up any interest in drinking wines likely to induce a headache in people who think they were fruit juice. So actually for me, that was a very early and good lesson yeah. that you have to moderate your consumption mm. and that moderating that consumption, especially if it tastes like fruit juice and you're unaware of the, um, the ability to cause a headache is no bad thing. So we had a very liberal education when it came to wine. My parents, friends, many of them were the well-known artists of the era, all of whom liked drinking wine, all of whom had spent a stint in Europe. So they all had wine and wine cellars, and they all had the same view mm. on teenagers having reasonable amounts of wine if there was a Sunday lunch. And our Sunday lunches, certainly, wine was served at my parents' home, at our friends' homes, and so it was just part of a culture I grew up with. So certainly by the time I was finishing school, I had a reasonable knowledge of wine, both the local wine scene, which was in its infancy. In those days, and I'm now talking about the late 60s, there would have been maybe 50 different labels, labels on the market. So I looked through a price list from civil service wine store the other day, mainly because of the interest it holds in terms of imported wines. Mm. And that was an early 70s price list. And the list of South African wines you could actually buy from the trade in those days was, you know, the Niederbergers on a Blom, the Bellinghams. Um, and then you could still get, and there was Rustenburg. Rustenburg was one of the few independent wineries selling wine through the trade to the Johannesburg market. There was virtually no co-op wine available at all. Mm. And I would, I mean, I've seen... Other wines from that era, I've had, you know, the real von Kolovitz wines, um, the Landsraks were on those lists, but essentially it was SFW and very few independent producers. Crote Constantia, 
sold only on a Wednesday morning between 9 and 11 o'clock in the morning, and you had to queue mm. in order to collect it, and it was on allocation, a case of each type per person. At around eight a bottle, it wasn't an appalling deal, but there was no distribution in place and no ability to get that sort of stuff into the shops. And I guess by the time I was in matric, I was already buying wine for my own stash. Mm. And the next year I went to university, I had a very generous scholarship, which more than comfortably met the cost of my fees and my books. And I was also um, quite good at teaching matric maths, something which was more useful then than now. I can tell you there's no chance on earth that I could teach my son the maths that he's doing in the trick. But I used to give extra maths lessons to supplement the, the bursary. And those lessons in those days paid seven rand an hour or 12 rand if I had two students in the class. And to put context in that, for seven rand, you certainly could buy a decent second growth. And for 12 rand, mm. you could buy a bottle of Lafitte and you could buy a bottle of Latouche. <laughs> so uh, an hour of teaching maths to two recalcitrant matriculants could easily convert into a decent bottle of wine. And in fact, really to put context on that, a litre of petrol cost 10 cents. So, you know, seven rand, you know, earned three or four times a week on top of the bursary meant that um, I drank pretty much as a king. And so I had a really good collection of wine and I've shopped around for it. So I was quite no, well known at a lot of the retailers who stocked good wine. And I guess um, when I was in final year of my undergrad degree, I was invited to work over the um, December holidays at Benny Goldberg's. Benny Goldberg's in those days was the largest liquor supermarket in the world. And it is, or it seems inconceivable to South Africans today that firstly, there could be a store that would make that claim and be able to substantiate it. And that secondly, with the RAND, as strong as it was in the early 1970s, the buying power of a store like that was such that you could literally lose in the stock a container load of decent uh, French wine, and no one would mind particularly. And people came in and bought it. So I was brought in to sell the wines over the holiday, and then they said to me, listen, that was really successful. Would you like to work uh, weekends while you're doing your honours? And in between, we'll pay you as a consultant to do the imported wine shopping. Oh. So I would have been there in 2021 and in charge of the largest budget for imported wine buying in the country. Uh, I had a fabulous time. Oh, and sure. so did the customer. I brought in the first Petrus that mm. ever came to South Africa, bought 25 or 30 cases of 64, 67, and 70 vintage. And they all came in at around 20 rand a bottle. Yeah. And a year later, when the, you know, the Bordeaux market collapsed in the early 70s, we mopped up some of the lesser vintages. So I remember landing the 73 patches for nine rand a bottle. Um, it really was an extraordinary era to be shopping. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, it gave me a disproportionate sense of the real world, one that I suppose I've had to adjust to ever since. That firstly, you always buy stuff like that by the case. You never think in single bottles or in this case by the container load. And um, I finished my honours um, and then decided to go to France. 
that was a decision motivated firstly, obviously, by my interest in wine and by the prospect of getting to know French wines better and the fact that my girlfriend at the time had just got a bursary to study in Montpellier. So I took off to Montpellier as well and I spent 1975 in Montpellier and used that time to travel around the wine regions of France and to learn quite a lot from them. And because of the connections that I had already had from being a buyer in my honours year, I was able to access just about any property I wanted to go to. I was fabulously looked after by Martin Bamford at Gilby's Luden. I was given invitation cards to go to all the first growths. Um, I did a stint and visited cellars in Burgundy. I did a stint at Madame Cosson at Claude Lombre, the first of two such stints. And um, I had a really fun time. I can't tell you that it, um, I suppose it's the kind of thing that you look back on and you wonder why you didn't think of doing it. It sort of, it unfolded on its own as an idea. But at the end of that year, firstly, I discovered I was completely fluent in fairly slang French, a condition that I have managed to retain more or less to today. So my fluency depends on how often I'm expected to speak French, but it comes back quickly enough. And it's fluent but ungrammatical because it was never formally learned. Mm. And um, I'm not particularly good at writing it because it's spoken French. Yes. But that served me in extraordinary stead. And it was a complete byproduct of that year. I returned to South Africa without really sure idea of what I wanted to do. I had done the undergrad and honours degree simply because I had a scholarship that had no strings attached. And it struck me as a wonderful opportunity to study all sorts of things that I thought were interesting rather than things that would be useful mm. from a career perspective. So I was really unlikely to get a job at much except maybe in publishing or teaching or in academics. I was invited to carry on and get a doctorate and become a, a history academic, which um, really didn't appeal either. Mm. So while I was making up my mind, I got involved in a project, a liqueur project involving um, production in Andorra, which was a, oh. is still a duty-free zone between France and Spain. That came to naught. And then Benny Goldberg said to me, listen, why don't you come and work here permanently and be the imports director? They offered an extraordinary sum of money, and which considering that I had no more left at all, was <laughs> temptation to, to resist. So I joined the permanent staff of Benny Goldberg's and was there for officially full-time three years. And in that time, we grew the business substantially and I broadened my focus considerably. So I took on a lot of the responsibility for the South African wine buying and I developed what I think is the was the first range ever of house brand wine in South African wine retail. So given the size of that business, we were buying container loads. I did the blends, um, designed them, designed the packaging, designed the labels, designed the advertising campaign, and got the wines to market. And at the same time, the South African wine market itself was opening up. So as I said to you, in the early 70s, it was virtually impossible to buy any wine other than wholesale wine, merchant wine. By the late 70s, that had changed quite a lot. Firstly, um, Odemeister 
had launched the Berkelder, out of the Berkelder came that range of estates, which um, was marketed through the wholesaler, so it was available. The early estates in that range were Mirandal and Jakobsdal, but there was also, you know, Flirty Cup and Alto, and progressively, Eight Cake and Le Bonheur joined it, etc., etc. So there were those wines which at least added an element of variety. Sorry, Secondly, I'm, then I'm just going to quickly interrupt. That change between, from what you say, from the early 70s to the late 70s, I mean, there was a change in the, the wine laws around about that sort of 73, 74 time. Was that, was that change due to that or was it a separate... Uh... Exactly. On the money, it did a few things. That, that legislation, which initially looked like bureaucracy gone mad, but in retrospect, it was a fantastic thing for the South African wine industry. Firstly, we were the first wine industry of the new world and pretty much of the old world where that level of certification and verification was in place. It came with the burden of bureaucrats managing it. So if a cabinet didn't taste like the cabinet to the bureaucrats charged with the job of certifying the wine, then you were refused certification. It's a problem we still have, as you know, today. But basically the traceability dates from that legislation. So that was um, essentially an amendment to Act 25 of 1957, and it became law on the 2nd of January, 1973. And with that change in law, the estate system was established, the wine of origin system was established, the guarantee of vintage of origin and of varietal was all established in that system. The first consequence of that is that a huge number of these merchants' wines, which sold with claims to variety on the label, were technically illegal. And that is because... Prior to that, there had been no requirement. You could call a wine Cabernet and not even have one drop of Cabernet in the bottle. You could call it 1964 and it didn't have to come from 1964. So all of a sudden, everybody had to comply. And in the early days, and that legislation was was the outcome of a lot of um, negotiation with the big players in the industry who obviously shared their concerns that they didn't have enough Cabernet for all the famous Cabernets in the market. <laughs> so in the early days, um, you were allowed to call a wine Cabernet with 25 or 30% only of Cabernet in the bottle. And progressively, they moved that up to 50, 75, and finally quite a lot later, 85. So the first thing that happened was a huge red wine shortage. By red wine, what was meant is Cabernet that people wanted to buy. And I remember that you would pay, people would come into Benny Goldberg's and say, come on, you've got to have a bottle of Nidibert Cabernet here somewhere. And you'd check, and if it was a really good customer, you'd say, well, what else are you buying? And then you'd have to buy a supermarket trolley full of other wines, and then you'd go to the back and emerge with a bottle of Nidibert Cab and a bottle of Nidibert Selected Cab, and that was what he got for having bought another 50 or 100 other bottles of wine. There was a real shortage of those favourite brands and to be fair, they were fabulous wines. Mm. So I don't know how many old Niederbergs you've tasted from the 60s, the selective Cabernets, mm. but the ones that are alive today are fabulous. Yeah. And, yeah, they were compliant. How much cab they really had, no one knows. Um, maybe Gunther knows and he doesn't remember so well. But um, they were really nice wines and they were significantly better than many of the other branded wines on the market. There were 
Uh, you couldn't buy anything from the KWV. It wasn't allowed to be sold in South Africa. Um, and there were, you know, half a dozen other merchants' brands, generally blended wines, generally made with overcropped sinso. So in the mid-70s, there was this period of red wine shortage. And firstly, it was a great market into which a certain amount of imported wine went. I mean, at a time when you were paying five rand, you know, behind, under the counter for a bottle of Niederberg, you could buy a second growth Bordeaux for that. Mm. So the odd thing is that people wanted the South African wines. They didn't want the Bordeaux. It was very much a divided market. And into that vacuum, a couple of producers, um, partly led by the likes of Franz Milan and Simonsef and the guys who formed the Stellenbosch wine route, they went independent. They broke the monopoly that was imposed upon them by the wholesale merchants, people who had said to them, listen, if you start selling to the public, if you start selling from your cellar door, we won't buy your bulk wine for our blends. Right. So it took a lot of courage for the first few guys to break ranks and to say, that's it, we will take responsibility for the total sale of our own, our own crops. And that went on for a few years as others joined the party. Um, Sidney Back at Batsburg had started doing that in the early 70s, his first vintage as Batsburg was 69. And so he took advantage of the new estate wine legislation and the fact that having sold his big wholesale business, Bax Wines, he was then without any obligations to the wholesale merchants. So he came into the business, Simonsek was in the business, Delheim, Speer, and slowly others saw the opportunity and what we saw from that time onwards, and even today, was that people who were established grape growers finally either did deals and separated their crops, said we'll do 50% for ourselves, and the merchants finally had no choice. And Mealist is a perfect example. The first modern vintage of Mealist was the 1975, which was a Cabernet, but Mealist had been a bulk wine, a bulk grape supplier for years to, to Odemester, to distillers. Mm. And that was a managed arrangement. So uh, Nico went to them and said, listen, I want to sell someone under the farm name. They agreed what he would do. It was sold and distributed by the Bergkelder. So he did have, um, um, it, it, it had the blessings of the wholesaler to whom he sold the bulk of his wine. So he started with a Cabernet in 75. Um, sold a Pinotage for one year only in 76. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they made any wine in 77. Very few people did. It was a catastrophic vintage. Mm -hmm. But by 78, there was a demand for that wine, and by 80, he could come to the market with, with Rubicon. Um, Billy Hofmeyer at Welchement launched the first Bordeaux blend in 79. So there was a lot of action and activity, all of which I think had been catalyzed by the legislation that came in to, you know, determine the, the way the industry functioned yeah. from 1973. By 1980, um, there were certainly a hell of a lot more players in the game. They were all relatively small. Even the co-ops were developing a little bit of courage here because they really did depend 
on the wholesale merchants for the bulk of their wine, but there was an increasing tolerance that it wasn't going to ruin the branded wine business that badly. So Esther Fier started selling wine. Uh, Velmut probably in those days. Helderberg certainly. Burland Co-op. And some of the co-ops from the Robertson, Bonnyvale area started supplying the big chains. And they were obviously the source of wherever I was going to build and blend house brand wine as well. So gradually the market opened up and liberated. And that situation prevailed into the 80s. By 1979, I was seriously bored with my job. And so I negotiated a deal where I would remain as a kind of part-time consultant, whatever, still do the buying, still be responsible for a lot of the stuff around the legislation because it was a, a, a minefield of red tape and nobody really understood how easily or what had to be done just to manage shipments and so on. So I was doing that kind of work. I was increasingly familiar with most levels of the market and I thought actually the knowledge I have in a way is unique and that I could sell that as a service to lots of people, which I did starting at the end of 79, beginning of 1980. And I took on quite a lot of multinational clients, those that were trying to develop their brands in this market and a few who just wanted to make use of that expertise in other markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helped that I was able to speak French and talk to the winemaking teams and so on. So that really, in a sense, gave me the chance to set up and operate on my own. And at about the same time, a good friend of mine who had run a, what I think was the smartest wine store in town for civil service had sold his business and had acquired a foreign liquor license, which was an unusual concept. It meant you were allowed to sell imported wine directly to the public, but they had to buy in wholesale quantities, which was nine liters or more. Mm-hmm. And that was reciprocal wine. And he had bought it from four professionals who had started it roughly 10 years earlier, thinking that it would be a tax-efficient way of building their cellars. They discovered that the cheapest bottle of wine is the one you buy directly from the merchant. So I think after 10 years of running a little business so that they could buy their wine or steal their wine out of the business or whatever they were doing, they discovered it cost too much to run. Right. And it had a bunch of terrible agencies, but it had a license. And in those days... Licenses were hard to come by. Abby bought that and then was told that it would still infringe for a year or two the restraint of trade that followed the sale of his wine shop in Johannesburg. So I, together with a couple of other guys, took on the business and ran it, um, each as shareholders. And so I was a minority shareholder in Reciprocal and remained as such with the others till the mid-'80s by which time the famous Rubicon speech had sent the rand on its downward spiral and what had been bought by all of us as a kind of fun thing was looking not so healthy. In that time between becoming a shareholder, I was really the only person running that business. I cleaned out all the stock that we had inherited, most of which was pretty lousy. The exception was Chateau Palmer. The business had rights to acquire Palmer directly from Sichel. So um, we had Palmer and a few of 
Angludet and a few of the other social properties, but nothing else. And I negotiated deals, many of which are still with Reciprocal today. So the Louis Latour agency dates from 1980, um, Bo Castell to 1980, to Ladisette to 1980. Um, we initially took over Perrier Jewett until it was over, uh, taken over by Pernod Ricard. So all of the key agencies that became the core of the reciprocal business date to that year in 1980, when as a part-time kind of executive in a little wine business, I had simply decided to change the nature of what was being imported and get on with it. And those agencies have now been with reciprocal for 40 years and have been, I guess, the bread and butter of its business. Mm. And they give the company that opportunity to provide, um, in the case of the Burgundies, and in fact, all of them, most of those are estate wines that are sold under a bigger distribution umbrella. So Domaine Latour, Domaine Jadot, Beaucastel de la Dissette, there's not a lot of bought-in grape in that stuff. It's generally estate wine, but available in slightly more generous quantities, and generally it's you know, prices, and that's the way the market has panned out, that makes them affordable, even, I have to say, in the context of what has happened to the RAND in the last couple of couple of months. So that was reciprocal. Always remained a bit of a part-time business. I was really running my consultancy, and everything kind of ticked along quite nicely to the mid-80s when um, the RAND collapsed, the other shareholders wanted out, and um, together with Mike Kavinsky, who is still part man shareholder in Reciprocal, we took out the other shareholders. We turned the business around and it's traded in a more visible way ever since. Mm. And it's grown. And I guess for the first 15 or 20 years of its life, what it did was break even. It served as a kind of fun hobby. It gave me access to that world of wine. I traveled frequently, spent a lot of time with those guys. In those days, no one else from South Africa had that kind of access to the world of international wine. And it, it, was, it was a wonderful platform. It's now become, I think, a much more successful business. It, um, well, certainly until COVID, it was a successful <laughs> business. Uh, uh, we'll have to see what it looks like once the dust settles here. Mm. But it's been, it's been a wonderful voyage. And increasingly over the years, it's acquired real staff. It's directed by the day-to-day -day running of that business is run by Michael Crossley. Um, but I'm still obviously very involved, certainly on the buying side. And progressively, I'm not quite sure how the world unfolded from the mid-80s into the mid-90s. Can I just, sorry, sorry, Michael, I might yeah. just interrupt you and ask you. I mean, obviously the late 70s and early 80s were a pretty tumultuous time, to put it mildly, in South Africa. Um, you know, sort of a, Not nearly as tumultuous. Well, different kinds of tumultuous. So 76 obviously is a, a, a massive divide. Hmm. Um, and the other day I was trying to work out how things and why things changed so much politically. Because... Um, I came from a family that was very politically active and things changed 
it wasn't just Sharpville. I mean, I remember certainly at Sharpville, a lot of my parents' friends were arrested. They were either incarcerated or house arrested. My aunt was involved in a, uh, a post-Ravonia trial. There were a lot of political things. And at that, I was obviously too young to understand. My parents shared all the political stuff with us. But I only realised afterwards um, I went to some kind of documentary and in the post-63, post-Ravonia era till probably the mid-70s, and this is really a personal interpretation, I think the kind of krachtadig response of the Nat government to the whole Ravonia issue and the subsequent... You know, we, we know that the Ravonia trialists got life sentences, but few people remember that a hell of a lot of the post-Ravonia people were sentenced to death. And there was no clemency. There was a period probably from 64, 65, when the government clamped down, took out a lot of people's lives. And I think they really suppressed um, opposition in the country. That's when lots of people left in order to increase what became the underground war. Mm. By 76, there was a new generation who partly were not prepared to live under the same repression. And partly, and this is the thing I was trying to understand, I think that they weren't as intimidated as their parents' generation because they hadn't seen the level of clampdown that followed 64. And I think that made a vast difference. And suddenly there was critical mass and the liberation movements inside the country, much more, I think, than outside the country, changed the dynamic of politics in South Africa. And post-76, the, the edifice did start to crumble and it crumbled in many different ways. So in gestures like the Urban Foundation, the electrification of Soweto, just, you know, very bourgeois internal solutions to the fact that you then had movements like the UDF. You had, by the time you go into the 80s, more and more people wanting to talk to the exiles. The whole country went through a process. Mm. It went through the process, and I'm not pretending for a moment, to be a political commentator on that era, it was something much too close. You also had the end conscription campaign at the universities. You had, you just had a constant set of process which also fragmented the ruling party. And the HNP and the Conservative Party of Trianet split off to the right. The United Party lost all of its what was left of the bite that it had. And the, the white political dispensation looked nothing like it had in the 1960s when the Nats were in power, the United Party was the opposition, and the Progressive Party actually was just Helen Sussman. Huh? Um, it was a much different political scene. There was much more, you know, visible black opposition. And the economy, by the time it went into the post-Rubicon lockdown was pretty unhealthy. And South Africa operated for at least, I would guess, five years 
with a very strong isolationist mentality that increasingly the international market wasn't doing business with us. What business was being done was being done surreptitiously. Guys from the KWV told me that they were shipping huge volumes of South African surplus wine, which they were obliged to take in terms of the Act, the KWV Act. They were obliged to take as buyers of last resort. They were shipping the stuff in tanker loads, literally in ships that were tankers mm. to Europe and in Rotterdam, that wine was getting Bulgarian identity papers and being shipped through the supermarkets, presumably in Britain. Mm. Um, and so there was a lot of sanctions busting. There were firms that specialized in it, but all of that came at cost to the economy because the middlemen who changed the ID of wherever the goods came from took a big cut. So it was a very strange economy. And and when, you were, when you were bringing in French wine at that time, was it difficult to operate in France being a South African and was there a stigma at attached? No. No, none of that at all. Um, um, the French um, have always taken the view that um, the customer is always right. Right. <laughs> um, so, no, they were very happy to do business. Um, there were no restrictions in terms of travel there. Okay. I don't even think there was a visa requirement, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, there was no issues there, no issues in Spain, no, no issues in Italy, Germany, um, nor even, to be honest, in America. Mm. Um, Travelling to Australia was interesting because there were no direct flights. Australia wouldn't let Qantas fly here, so Qantas flew to Harare. And if you wanted to fly to Australia on Qantas, you'd have to fly via Harare. South African Airways were not allowed to land there. Um, and the other route was a Hong Kong route. So SAA flew to Hong Kong, and then you'd take Qantas from Hong Kong to wherever. So certainly my first trips to Australia, even from the, I don't know about the very first trip, but certainly in the early 80s, were all indirect flights. Yeah. No, fair enough. So I did interrupt you. You were at sort of at the uh, sort of leading into the late eighties with your super. That is probably when the the whole political situation was at its worst. Isolationism. The Rand was we thought bad then. Um, trade was obviously difficult. Um, there was um, people who want to remember it. You know, there were risks of you know bombings in supermarkets and in shopping centres. So it was a, a much, I mean, it really was an era which we've certainly as white South Africans chosen to forget mm. and we shouldn't. It was um, very much a, a, an awkward and evil time. There's no question about it. But people bumbled on and then progressively um, the Nats split internally and externally. De Klerk came to power he made the decision to, to release Mandela, not entirely, as far as one can say, tell with the full support of his party, and then began what looks retrospectively to have been an inexorable process leading towards 1994, unless you either remembered it or have read the books of what really went on in those last couple of years and how close things were. And... Um, I had the privilege of my, my father and Madiba 
had been friends in the 50s. So I had the privilege of, of, a, of a lunch and meeting a few times with him in the post-94 era. And at one of those lunches, he spoke about how marginal the last six weeks were leading to the, the 94 election, how marginal they were in terms of whether there would be an attempted right-wing coup, whether the military would actually accept what happened. Um, so um, we've kind of forgotten that, but that was the time when the wine market, of course, started to open up. Mm. The moment Mandela was released, exports started growing slowly at first mm. because everybody waited to see what was really going to happen. And the industry was clearly not geared for what followed mm. um, because markets wanted uh, something other than virus threads and Chenin Blanc. And that's pretty much all that was available right. when the markets opened up in the mid 90s. Yeah. So, you know, in my own personal journey, 1994, a guy called Peter Devereux, who had been the, the founder of things like the SAA Wine Judging and the Diners Club Awards and so on. And Peter died and I was asked to do the SAA selection. And with that, a whole lot of things that were huge fun at the time. Firstly, SAA in those days certainly did a fabulous job for the industry. The selection process for the first few years, they literally lived with whatever wine won in its particular category. And so um, if it was Hamilton Russell, Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, they didn't bulk at the price, they negotiated, but they listed it. So there was no question of using that onboard listing as a guideline. It really was a genuine the wine came out on top, that's what they ordered and bought, and they found their ways to make it work within the budget. There was also a fabulous marketing manager at SAA at the time, a fellow called Ian Bromley, and Ian understood something that both certainly gave me the worlds to play in, but I think also enabled, uh, provided a lot of benefit for the wine industry. Ian said to me that one of the problems selling South African Airways as, um, as an idea to international and particularly to American um, passengers or potential passengers is that the prejudice against Africa as a primitive dark continent would translate into a distrust about whether the plans were even properly maintained. Okay. And he said, it is a very interesting, but subliminally fine wine is a kind of proxy for civilization. Mm -hmm. it says it communicates the idea that this is a sedentary society of, um, that deals in, in kind of the vernacular of the modern world. So he was very happy to use that wine selection as a hospitality game, as a strategy. And for a couple of years, we took South African wines to all sorts of markets, um, Hong Kong, New York, London, presented them to travel agents, presented them to clients of travel agents, did tastings, did food prints. We really had an extraordinary time. Um, I saw the world, I traveled a lot, but I also had this opportunity of um, sharing South African wine with international consumers and watching the excitement of their discovery of how good it was, 
And you have to remember that in the mid-90s, the kind of South African wines you were typically likely to buy in wine stores or supermarkets internationally were the cheapest and nastiest of products brought in by brokers and middlemen who were simply trying to tick a box for a category on the shelf. But when it came to the sort of wine that was making the first and business class selection, they were really smart wines. And so people were being um, exposed for the first time to world-class wines from South Africa, something that they'd never envisaged. And um, Ian was quite happy to see a lot of the stuff leading to just raising the profile of South Africa. So when I came to him with the idea of a wine test match against Australia, mm. he understood exactly that that would produce a lot of coverage one way or another. And I said to him, listen, we are going to lose this thing hands down. But if the industry doesn't understand that just because we are being commercially successful in the post-94 era, and we were unbelievably successful, South African wines were the flavor of the month, Mandela was the flavor of the month, the wines that they were getting were actually crap. And no one in the industry was prepared to believe that we really didn't stand scrutiny on a general level. But so you saw that you saw that beforehand. Oh uh, yeah. Mm. And um, John Platter, with whom I chatted. So what happened in the beginning of 1995, John and I and James Halliday and Lynn Sheriff, and it was supposed to be Robert Joseph, but Robert then couldn't make it. We were also we all went to Chile because none of us at that stage had visited the vineyards in Chile. So we went in January 95 and we had a fabulous time, visited Chile and Mendoza, spent a lot of time together. James and I had been friendly since the late 80s. Um, and um, James spoke about the test matches that Len had organised against the Californians. Mm. And the Australians had walked those. So John and I were under no illusion about how a united Australian entry would walk over us. But we also thought that it would at least give producers a wake-up call. And we thought that even if we did badly, we would still have some good, some category strengths, which we did have. So we went to Ian and he gave us an extraordinary budget. So we were able to fly um, the very best international judges. So we had three judging panels. I mean, this is extraordinary in terms of the numbers of people who were flown around. So the Australians had a team of judges. South Africa had a team of judges. And because we didn't want it to be partisan, we were able to bring a middle team of international neutral judges, which included Oz Clark, Zelma, um, Paul Pontalier. And for every judge, there was also an associate judge. So this was a very good party. And at the end of three days of judging, South Africa lost by 21 points to 78, I remember. Oh, goodness. But we won a number of categories. Giles Webb, Sauvignon Blanc won its category. Um, a KWB 1953 Muscadel won the fortified wine class to the chagrin of the Australians mm. who thought it was their territory forever. But out of that result, a few things happened. There was serious outrage in the industry. For a couple of months, I was seriously persona non grata in the Cape. 
the guys just felt that I'd let the side down. Whereas the view that John and I had taken is that even if it was going to be an unpopular result, we were going to at least, you know, deliver a wake-up call that would make a difference. Oz Clark has said on more than one occasion that he believes that the SAA Shield of 1995 was the wake-up call that transformed the wine industry, he said, because although many of the guys in charge of the sellers were angry and bitter, the seller rats understood what was going on. And within two years, the largest international contingent at the Australian Technical Conference came from South Africa. International, I'm leaving out the Kiwis on this one, but you know, our guys realized that they needed to catch up and play catch up quickly. So if you look at the people who are now the leading figures in the industry, the Evan Sardis, the Mark Kents, they had just started out in the mid-90s, mm-hmm. and they learned the lessons far better than the head salamasters of that same era, many of whom were angry and bitter. The other problem for the industry is that because we knew we were going to lose, John and I made sure that everyone was on board for the competition. So Veritas helped us make our selection. Donnie DeVette was part of the, the, the selection panel. So they could be resentful, but they couldn't accuse us of making a selection of South African wines that wasn't going to stand scrutiny. We fielded our best team and we lost fair and square. We then, I then went to SA and said, listen, because they knew this was quite an unpopular thing, we should maybe run a similar competition against Chile and Argentina, where frankly we stood a much better chance of doing well. And we said, listen, that at least will, you know, buy back some of the loss of goodwill in the industry and also give South Africa a bit of a platform because at least we compete in price terms against the South American wines. So SAA agreed and we went ahead, made all the arrangements, announced this competition. And then what happened is the Bura Mafia moved in. So the deputy CEO of SAA was a guy named John, I think, Marburg. And he had a, his previous job had been at Arms Corps, which is now Donnell. And then um, CEO of the KWV had also come from Arms Corps. So the guys got together and organized that the, A, the competition would be banned, and B, that I would be unseated as the SAA wine selector, and that they would move away from this era of controversy. And I got wind of it two days, I think, before the whole thing was going to happen. I managed to get, because, well, from a whole lot of connections, I managed to get access to the guy who was the government appointee, so ANC, running Transnet, and SAA fell under Transnet. And I managed to get an appointment with him He listened to what I had to say. He knew nothing about wine. He was an administrator with some airline experience. And in a nanosecond, he saw what was going on. He said, listen, I don't think we can save the competition, but I can absolutely stop them from their coup, which is exactly what happened. So much to everyone's surprise, while the competition was shelved, I had a very tense relationship for a couple of years with SAA management, 
the likes of, of Marburg, I don't think, ever, ever forgave the fact that their instructions had been countermanded from on high. But we gone on and I continued to do the SAA selection. And by 1996, the KWV had concerns of their own. So what was happening then is that they had hatched a plot to privatise the organisation in order to essentially hijack all the assets which had been built up over the years as the buyer of last resort, as the national cooperative, privatised those, even though they were industry assets. They didn't belong, I mean, they belonged to the KWB nominally, but they had been built up at the expense of the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. So when I heard about that, I went to go and see the then Minister of Agriculture, Derek Honnacombe. Now, that was already still a government of national unity. Derek understood immediately what that was about, and he opposed the KWV's plan. He said he had an interest as Minister of Agriculture, and that since the KWV was entrenched in law as the statutory body responsible for the administration of uh, a lot of the legislation around the wine industry, it wasn't free on its own and without discussion with him, it wasn't free to do what it had planned to do. So I became an advisor to the minister. We ran that court case. Um, and essentially what Derek did was strategically he blocked the KWV plan, which got them around a negotiating table. And out of that, two things happened. They were given permission to privatise on the understanding that they made available a significant sum of money which was to be given back to the industry for over 400 million rand in real money terms in 1996-1997. But the details of that hadn't been finalised and I was in Australia at the very last stage and I said to Derek, I said, they're going to double cross you. And he said, I'd be very surprised if anybody double-crossed as a minister. Well, he was surprised. KWB did double-cross him and said that since the details weren't worked out, they weren't, the money was technically available, but until there was a structure for the spending of this money, they weren't, yeah. So then followed another lengthy negotiation. In the end, A, the money was reduced, but not by, well, by 20% real money. Secondly, a structure, the South African Wine Industry Trust, was developed where KWV would have all but the casting vote over decision-making, either around development of empowerment projects in the industry, um, an institution called DevCo for development, and the other around business, BuzzCo, which had to see to everything from research, development, in other words, Um, projects of benefit to the industry as a whole. So these were the two trust bodies of which I was chairman for the first three years. The problem was that the trust was only finalised in 1999. So it was two years of of negotiation. And no sooner was it established when um, Mandela's presidency ended, Thabo Mbeki, um, came to power, Derek didn't remain on as a minister, mm. and instead Togo Dadiza took it over. 
And since she's a president minister and I have no problem being rude about ministers because it's still her, her, her responsibility, she essentially neglected it entirely. She um, had, I think, been a deputy to Derek. They never got on well, so she pretty much didn't support any project right. that had been one of his. She ignored it for three years. She never replaced the directors and the trustees as they were supposed to have been replaced, so that over a three-year period, A, we ceased to be quarried, but secondly, we lost the power of our casting vote because we didn't have enough directors, we didn't have enough trustees. So we can only really run this thing if we approved projects that Cadbury was happy to support. Right. So it was a real mess, double cry, essentially because Togo Diza wasn't prepared to do anything. So as far as I'm concerned, she cut it off at the knees and then did one worse because... At the end of my term, she then did appoint a complete board and she put a mate of hers into running it and he simply stripped the place bare. So the first and early stages of state capture were courtesy of Togo and Gavin Peterser and he, um, you know, he held, held a conference for the industry organized by his wife's conference company. We were also naive in those days. We were outraged because that conference cost half a million rand, which didn't, I mean, it should have cost 50,000 rand, but this was really small money compared to what he finally did. Having helped himself and his cronies to quite a large chunk, he then accepted a deal proposed by KWV that the empowerment portion of their shareholding get funded out of the trust money. So, I mean, it's a perfect symmetry. The money that the KWV was compelled to pay the industry in order for the KWV to be free to privatize was then used so that the KWV could buy its own empowerment credentials and get the money back in the purchase of shares. I mean, it was a complete outrage overseen by Togo. At this point, there was nothing left, and out of deference to a lot of people in the industry who were the trustees who oversaw the deal, I won't name them, but they all of them essentially um, oversaw the rape of what should have been a fabulous fund for transformation, for development, and actually just for giving the industry a chance to proceed on a better footing. So my disenchantment, as you can see, um, dates back to then. But by then, 2001, 2002, um, I didn't continue with SAA. Instead, I moved and started the Trophy Wine Show. I only started the Trophy Wine Show because the guys at Veritas um, weren't interested in listening to the suggestions that I made to them about how to change the judging format. So I'd been doing a lot of judging in Australia. Um, I'd also been doing a lot of judging in America, in Britain, in France, and elsewhere in Europe. And I had seen the difference between an OIV-based judging with seven panelists, no discussion between the panelists and the Australian show system where there's discussion, where you've got to defend your score, and where there's a show chairman who can engage. And so I looked at that, designed a format, 
presented the idea to the late Harold Leeds, who was the publisher of Wine Magazine, and together we went to Old Mitchell, who took it on as a sponsorship and have carried it ever since. Mm -hmm. And the idea was always that there would be a system that would have transparency, a system in which there would be feedback to every winery that entered, a system in which there would be one international judge on every single panel, mm -hmm. which is much more rigorous than the Aussie system where there's one international mm -hmm. for the show. Mm -hmm. And that the whole idea would be that through that discussion and through the feedback session, which would follow that discussion, we would have a, um, what should I say, a much more um, defensible outcome, but that also the industry would be able to learn from the input of the international judge and at least get a sense of what the international markets were looking for. And yep. that's pretty much been the format of the show. We are really, um, we're planning to carry on this year. There's been a fantastic entry despite the lockdown. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we are able to um, set up the necessary judging to be compliant within the various permissions required, the show will go ahead. Mm -hmm. So, and Al Mitchell's really been a very supportive sponsor. The other change that more or less dates from this is that I took over what was Business Day Wine Festival. So the Business Day Wine Festival arose out of the Randaddy Mail Wine Festival. So now we're going back to 19, literally to 1976 when mm -hmm. I was working at Benny Goldberg's and business, the Randaddy Mail was then the morning paper in Johannesburg, came to Benny Goldberg's and said, listen, we've got a venue, we'd love to do a wine festival, will you bring the wine? So mm -hmm. I was involved in the very first Randaddy Mail Wine Festival, which was hosted at the courthouse. Now a kind of grand home used by the Rembrandt organization here in Johannesburg. We had a wine festival in 1976. It continued as the Randaddy Mail Wine Festival until the Randaddy Mail was closed down and re-emerged as Business Day. I was the wine writer. I started my wine writing actually for the Financial Mail in, I think, 1976. Okay. And was their wine correspondent. John Platter was the Randaddy Mail wine writer. We both had weekly or near weekly columns. Then John moved to the Cape and said to me, listen, you may as well take this column over. And he started um, writing the book. I think the first issue of the book was 1980. So certainly by 1980, I was writing a weekly column for the Financial Mail and one for, for business, for Randaddy Mail. When Randaddy Mail moved into Business Day, I continued to write the column for Business Day, and Business Day took over the Randaddy Mail Wine Festival and continued to run it. And it went; it had its ups and downs. But firstly, the newspaper wasn't a a, a perfect environment; it didn't have the trade connections, and the festival was was crumbling by the late 1990s. So in 2000, I went to the, the publishers and said, listen, you want to keep the name of the festival, you don't want the hassle of running the festival. And that was their position. I then went to RMB and said, listen, this is a wonderful opportunity to brand something, put some loot into it, and let's get the let's have a real wine show that isn't and is in a very central place. The Santon Convention Center was just being completed and I want the festival to be in the heart of the business district. 
the Randari Mail and the Old Business Day Festival had gone out to Kailami. It was in kind of vast gaping halls with no spirit, no vibe, no feeling. Yes. So the convention centre came on board, RMB came on board, and in its early days it was still called the Business Day RMB Wine Festival. Okay. In time that morphed into RMB Wine X, and it's continued since 2000, so this is the 21st issue this year. Mm. So these are all things that happened in that, for my life, very uh, crucial period of 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002. Lots of other things happened in my personal life. I got married in 1997, um, had one son in 2002, and he attended the very first Old Mutual Trophy wine show, judging aged all of, I think, about three or four weeks. Right. Janice's outsourcerous team was obviously involved in the kind of logistics around the show. So Janice had to be there. The baby had to come. So he came to the very first Old Mutual Trophy wine show. He's just turned 18. Um, in 2004, my other son was born. And that, I suppose, in a lot longer than I thought it would take, is the longish story of my life in wine. <laughs> well, if I think it to 20 years ago, Michael, that's still more. I mean, that's, that's only. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's an incredible, it's an incredible CV or a list of experiences. A lot of ground to cover. Maybe I'll change track. I mean, you're still writing articles for Wine Mag, I know. Are you still, got a, are you still writing for Daily Maverick as well, occasionally? Uh, I haven't for ages, but there's no reason why I wouldn't. It just yeah. hasn't been that way. So I wrote for Daily Maverick. Um, I write for Business Day, still Business at least a weekly column. In lockdown, I've been given a certain amount of editorial page spaces to focus on issues of great concern to the industry. So um, I've written everything from the questionable legality of the liquor lockdown to the proposed trading hours under level three. I look for issues around liquor that make for news and they're very happy to run them. So I do quite a lot of work for Business Day. Um, I write for Wine Business International, uh, Meiniger's in Germany. Um, I have written, obviously, for um, Decanter. I haven't for years, but I certainly used to. Um, I write occasionally for Somalia, India. Um, I'm trying to think where else. And um, obviously, I write for Wine Wizard. We haven't even talked about Wine Wizard. No, no. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so um, I do a lot of still do a lot of writing. I wrote a Penguin book of South African wine. I co-wrote with Andy Murray, Conspiracy of Giants, which has become pretty much a standard text on monopoly structures. It's used in teaching, I know, at UCLA and at a couple of other universities in America. And I've contributed, obviously, to, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 books, but primarily important things like the South African section in the Oxford Companion to Wine, Chances Robinson's book. Um, I've contributed to one of Hugh Johnson's and the Global Wine Encyclopedia. Mm. But, um, you know, the writing is a, is a discipline and it keeps me focused. But um, it's certainly, you know, it's certainly not lucrative, but it's, it's a really nice to do. Yeah, I think it's important for the industry to have someone with your experience um, to 
maintain a interaction with the industry in terms of that in terms of that column. Um, although those columns, maybe chat to um, the last twenty years in South African wine. I mean, I've told this story on the on the podcast before, but on um, two thousand and seven. Um, Cape wine uh, was my first real experience of an immersion of of South African wine, and I wasn't really that impressed, to be honest. Um, I'd just done a stint in two, of two years in in London, working at the Harrods Wine Department, sort of dealing with the creme de la creme of the world's wines, and then landed in Cape Town and went around and had some had some lovely wines, but most of it was pretty uniform and uninteresting, uh, sort of internationally style wines. And then then I came back. The next time I came back was, in terms of wine, seriously wine, was um, was Cape Wine 2012. And that was a very different experience where sort of, the, the, I, I think, where the modern South African wine industry sort of showed itself. But obviously there'd been uh, a, a development, a, a gestation period uh, before that. Maybe chat to your experience for those sort of 20 years from, from 2000, 2020 and and our current situation in terms of, I mean, I know, uh, you, you've commented on um, the the state of wine in South Africa at the moment, and small producers not producing enough, and so maybe maybe chat to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I do think that's a really important overview point. And in fact, we need to go back slightly. Go back to '94. Mm. Suddenly, it's huge export. Um, it's it's valuable for the industry because the RAND was much stronger then, but it was still weak enough that the ridiculously low prices being paid for South African wine, where we more or less went on shelf at £2.99. But the industry was recouping in those days roughly a third of the on-shelf price. So at £2.99, you were getting a pound a bottle at export. A pound a bottle then was probably 10 or 12 rand. You could check me back on that. But 10 or 12 rand in 1995 was a really good return. Exporting paid much better than the domestic wine scene. So people were very happy to do that. They were happy to get ridiculously low prices without realising that that was going to peg forever the price point of South Africa, at least in those marketplaces. And in a sense, they couldn't ask for much more because the wines were pretty ordinary and pretty crap. They were tended to be highly acidic, not quite ripe, ripe enough, lots of virus-related problems, and very unsexy cultivars. And maybe this is, you know, it really got me onto a sidetrack now. Uh, two or three years earlier, I had launched what is now the Shannon Renaissance, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to claim 100% of the initial thought behind this and all the others came after. I saw this as an opportunity. I saw this huge resource. We were over 30,000 hectares of Chenin Blanc vineyard in the Cape in the mid-90s. And if 5,000 of those hectares were good and old, I thought it would be a tragedy to lose them. The point is everyone was ripping them out because the international market had come along and said, we want red wine. So all the old Chenin vineyards were being pulled out and Merlot, which doesn't do particularly well here, um, but was in demand internationally, was being planted. So I uh, did difficult things for me. I went to talk to the KWV and spoke to Yanni Retief and said, listen, we need your support for this. I went to WineMag and said, you need to run a Shannon Challenge. Mm-hmm. It's the only way to get the industry to recognize the variety. I promise you, people said I was mad. Mm-hmm. I then went to SAA and said, would they fund a couple of 
first-class decades know-how to bring out speakers to the first Shannon and the second Shannon Symposium. And they did. So we got the whole industry together. We talked them into the idea that before they pulled out all their Shannon, they should identify the blocks that are important. They should at least try and make interesting Shannons. And out of that era, there were lots of adventurous winemakers who have reappeared in the subsequent post-2000 era. So, you know, Teddy Hall, who is now forgotten, won that several times. Um, David Trafford won it a couple of times. And so there was a Shannon challenge. There was a focus on Shannon. And for the first time, there was a focus on retaining some of the old vineyard. Mm. Bank that to the one side pocket. The truth is that the South African wine industry didn't see any need to become more competitive in the mid-90s. Yes, it was replanting, but it was replanting essentially to supermarket specs. Mm-hmm. And um, at least some of the material was virus-free, but a hell of a lot of the rootstock probably wasn't. So that a lot of those virus-free plantings took a few years for the virus to grow through, and there it was time and time again. So there were very few exciting wines coming out of the 90s because even though they were replanting, it was either young vines or quite quickly virus vines. I did have a job in those days doing the blends for Vinfruco, which was all for export. So Unifruco, the big fruit export body, went and talked to half a dozen Stellenbosch winemakers, Jan Borland, Kutzir, um, Rustenberg was involved. The co-ops, all of the co-ops came on board. Mm. And my job was to make the blends and make up the wines, which they would then sell through their international marketing network to the Brit supermarkets. And it was very interesting. I was being given what the winemakers considered unsaleable junk. And it was often stuff that was just a little, in their language, overripe. But actually, in terms of international markets, the taste of South African wine was underripe, certainly compared to the Australian experience. So I was taking that stuff, refreshing it with a little bit of underripe, making my own wood chip solutions, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> and making inexpensive stuff from pretty good, believe me, pretty good, but very basic wine. So if you use that as a diagnostic for what was wrong in that first five to 10 years, it is that we didn't have the right varietals, that where we did, they had often been poorly cited. They were virus-free on top, but not necessarily underneath. So as the vineyards acquired a little bit of age and character, so they also presented as virus. And the whole industry was geared to volume. Yeah. And that, by definition, is not going to produce interesting wine. There was an initiative which had started in Shannon about the importance of old vineyard and proper siting and creating wines of personality. So the guys who kept doing well, Jean Daniel won that award once. As I told you, Teddy won it, Trafford won it. Um, I, you know, as you look at those early winners, they were all people who were trying to be a bit experimental, not necessarily over-oaking, using lees, looking at different types of ripeness. So suddenly there was that. There was very particularly, as I mentioned it earlier, the likes of Ibn Saadi, who had started at Spice Root and was then moving to his own winemaking. Mark Kent, who started in 97 at mm-hmm. Book and Hertz Club. 
a whole new generation of younger winemakers. All of those factors came together. And with that, a sudden recognition that, firstly, the estate system, which most more people were abandoning because the constraints and the legal limitations were pretty tough, but you could at least make estate and non-estate wines in the same cellar, which had initially been prohibited. Okay. But what the estate system did show was that the really interesting blocks of, of vineyard were not really certifiable in those days because there was no single vineyard certifications, but there were lots of interesting vineyards. So the young ones were the ones who went out and went looking for the interesting vineyards. Mm -hmm. And so the Malinus who were at Tilbach, um, Eben, etc. suddenly the idea of the site, the single site rather than the estate as the unit of production became fashionable. And in many of those cases, they were older vines that were managing either because they weren't that easily prone to virus mm. or because the virus wasn't adversely affecting the quality of the fruit. Yeah. But but I mean, just to interrupt, sorry, sorry, Michael. I don't mean to, uh, it's a bit, there's a bit of a delay, so it's a bit hard to interrupt without yep. being seeming rude, so I apologise. Um, but, I mean, you mentioned Ibn Sadi and the Malinouche, but they weren't making single vineyard wines initially. They were making uh, blended wines in terms of perhaps um, single varietal, but certainly different vineyards. Um, yeah, but they were paying attention to the vineyard source. In other yes, words, correct. Yeah, they yeah. were seeking out the right blocks. Yes. And that's the logical first step to then saying, hang on a second, I lose more than I gain. If I blend this vineyard with that vineyard, I lose the identity of both vineyards. Um, so as soon as they can, as soon as you can get enough critical mass, you can sell a slightly more commercial um, wine as the blended wine and then identify those single sites that... Um, so you've got this as a process. In other words, you're winemakers and it's no time at all before all of a sudden the Alhats appear on the scene. People who recognize the, and the importance of identifying sites mm -hmm. and where that site can give them enough fruit to justify a single bottling they go for it. So this process is gradual. In the wine industry, you of all people don't need me to tell you, everything has to be gradual because what is an experiment in this year takes a year or two to produce the manifest result. And then even if you've got the buy-in, it takes two to three years to get the critical mass around that idea. So I think quite rightly, by 2007 here, there was very little of that visible. It was starting to happen, but a lot of it was happening in slightly bigger, not huge commercial sellers. You know, Eben had already started on his own, but Spice Root was a mid-sized commercial seller. So was Tilbach Mountain Vineyards. So you, you get the idea, but you're still producing to something of a timetable, something of a production spec. Mm. It takes it, those guys need to set up on their own. They need to get past the blending of vineyards, which is the first stage of survival, to the single site wines, which become the expression of the single vineyards that they always knew were good, but they need to be able to market what they were making. So yes, by 2012, that process has accelerated. 
We also by then have a much better idea of which of the newer plantings are in good condition. So suddenly it's not necessarily dependent only on older blocks or less sexy varieties. You can now do that with lots of stuff. By 2012, um, it's 10 years or more into even projects like Villafonte, which started with Zelma Phil and Michael Back from Baxburg identifying the site, mm -hmm. planting up the vineyard, and only afterwards did Mike Radcliffe get involved. But that was a project that was a ground-up project in which you start the site, you make sure that you've got healthy vineyards, you design the style of wine, and you run to that idea. Mm. And all of that um, started to, to appear and therefore gave the concept critical mass in that period, 2004 to probably 2012. Since then, what we've seen, to I suppose finally answer your question, is a proliferation of lots of that. Mm. And it comes with pros and cons. So anybody who has the equivalent of a garage or rented space and thinks he can identify an interesting site and thinks he can sell 25, 50 or 100 cases of wine can go into that business for a year or two or three. And some of them do that as a kind of weekend job. You work in a winery, you break the news to your um, employer that actually you also want to do a little bit of wine on your own. You find that you have an employer sympathetic enough to realize that it's stupid to say no, and you do it. And finally, you either succeed or you realize that you can't run a wine business part-time. Mm. And if you can't, you either go full-time or you abandon the idea. You've seen enough of that in your time in South Africa to know that it's a natural and Darwinian attrition. In fact, it's probably the only Darwinian component in this industry up to COVID-19. Mm. I mean, in your lifetime in South Africa, how many big wineries have actually gone bankrupt? Uh, Under five is my guess. Not many, yeah. Okay, far fewer than in Australia. Mm. What we've seen instead is at that real kind of grassroots level, the guys don't renew their business. They do it for a few years, they sell out their stock, they go home and lick their wounds, or they grow. And by growing, they survive and they develop that whole category. And so that, I think, has been the most exciting single component. The part we all ignore in the changes of the last 20 years is how good, and I mean this in a technical sense, how good the merchant wines have become. Mm -hmm. So they, too, have gone from being hard-tandened, mean, um, undispirited, and often quite dirty mm -hmm. to sometimes too clean, um, sometimes overripe, um, but they have, all of them, refined their production. I think South Africans are unbelievably well served in wines that they can buy from 40 to 80 rand a bottle. I know this is not necessarily your audience, but there can't be many countries in the world where $3 buys you that kind of value. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one because you've got, you're just talking about the, the monetary value in terms, of in terms of spending power. I mean, um, 80 rand to a South African is, is worth much more to 80 rand 
to a an American or Australian or a European. Um, so there is that part of it as well. I mean, I, I've I've maintained since I've been here that South Africans' top wines are probably not expensive enough, whereas their bottom wines too expensive um, in terms of the quality. So I've got maybe a different um, viewpoint to you or experience. Okay, I mean, you yeah. even talk numbers. I mean, what do you um, do? You take a Dimmersdahl standard Sauvignon Blanc. So I'm really on a minefield here, given that I don't love serving on block on the day. <laughs> that's a wine that's on shelf for about 70 rand. It's a pretty smart serving on blanc for what it is. Yeah. It gives you dollops of serving on fruit. It is, it's a neat wine. Yeah. You can buy pretty nice stuff from, I don't know, Douglas Green for less than that. My only point is it may be a lot for South Africans. There's virtually no money in that for the grower. There's not a lot of money in that for the winery a huge amount of those costs are absorbed or are taken up with hard currency-related impacts. Transport, closures, all of these things are calibrated in hard currency terms. The authentic part of South Africa in that is the fruit and the juice and the employment that runs through the chain. But every other cost there, just about, is driven by hard currency criteria. So to get that to market at 70 Rand is making nobody rich. And it may be expensive for the average South African. I still think it's a pretty smart wine. By the same token, and here and I, you and I are not going to agree, I don't think that it is easy to justify pricing over three or 400 Rand a bottle at the top end of the market, certainly not on the basis of, of input cost. So your argument, and to be fair, you can, the same rule applies in Bordeaux, that it doesn't cost a hell of a lot more than that to produce a bottle of first growth. Yeah. So then the pricing is determined by demand. Yes, the market market decides, yeah. Yeah. And so where we see the 500 rands a bottle, and we know they're selling five or 6,000 bottles, I call that a successful brand. Mm. When you are a mere list, and you're on shelf for over 400 rand a bottle, and you're probably selling 30,000 cases, that is a spectacular achievement in the context of South African wine, a completely spectacular achievement from the point of price, input cost, profitability. Canoncorp is another perfect example mm-hmm. of a very well-segmented business that does its job, achieves high prices. Mm-hmm. And notwithstanding the surprising result in the last Strauss sale, there's no rational reason on earth why a bottle of 2015 Paul Sauer that fetched 1,000 rand last year fetched 5,000 rand here. So you have to assume it's an irrational reason. And once you apply the theory of irrational reasoning and look at what was paid for the imported wines on that very tiny offering, you would have to be brain dead to believe that that justifies a strong secondary market in South Africa. If they put proper volumes on that sale, they wouldn't get those prices. So the very simple rule of let the market decide tells us that if you could get more money for Canoncorp's wines and you were Johan Kricker, you would be getting more money. Mm. He's doing bloody well to get six to 800 rand a bottle on those volumes. The market does not pay more. And Changing that is about getting a bigger market, not about making the wines better. The wines are fabulous, but there are lots of brilliant wines that don't fetch the same money 
that first and second growths do. There are lots of great burgundies that sell for a fraction. I mean, you know, by way of an example, Louis Latour's Romani Saint Vivant vineyard is five meters from Romani Conti. It is in the one corner of Romani Saint Vivant that is closest to Romani Conti. And it sells for 12,000 Rand a bottle, and Romani Conti sells for 200,000 Rand a bottle. That isn't about wine, that's about brand. Yes. It is that simple. And yeah. that's what changed the game for South Africa mm. is when our wine brands are recognized as being worth more than what we are charging for them. You, you struggle to, I'm trying to sort of paraphrase you, I guess, you struggle to understand that or you struggle to think that it's going to be um, sustainable or what's the issue, if that's, if that's the case? I'm not, I'm not struggling at all because oh. it's not my struggle. <laughs> I'm trying to understand, well, I do understand, what I'm trying to say is that if we want our wines to fetch what we think they're worth on the basis of a blind tasting, in other words, if you put the 2015 Canon Corp in a blind tasting against a wine that has a more or less similar internationally agreed rating, so this is not a, an unnecessary dig at Tamatkin, mm. let's for the moment assume that that 100 points is not agreed on by, say, Neil Martin. Neil gives it a 97 or a 96, whatever that score is supposed to mean. Now take another Neil Martin. 96 and say to yourself um, the Canon Corp is a thousand rand the other Neil Martin is four thousand rand the other 96 of Neil is four thousand rand and then say if that's what they get blind and if you finally have a test where you can go to a lot of people and say do you agree that these wines are comparable and equal to the same you know same respect in the marketplace and you achieve that then the question is why the discount for the one versus the premium on the other? Mm. And the answer to that question, assuming both products are available in comparable quantities. Yes. So you can't use a burgundy argument because they make 200 cases mean zip. Mm. But assuming these are two or 3,000 or 5,000 cases available of these wines, why does the one fetch 5,000 and the other one 1,000? It's because the worldwide demand is greater. Yes. And that's where we haven't, as an industry, leveraged value. Because there's a South African discount, it's not a sufficient reason. There's a Tuscany discount, but Sasakaya trades for way above the average Tuscan price. So Canonco could conceivably trade for more if more people around the world understood what it was worth mm. and were prepared to pay for it. So it doesn't matter what currency you're shopping in, somebody pays the equivalent of 5,000 Rand for Stefan Dumais or whatever you want to call it and pays one-fifth of that for Canon Corp. It's only because it's not able to get the demand to, to, to bring a price level that you think the wines are worth and about which I would agree. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's a number of factors of that. I mean, do all those um, scores, I know you didn't want to single out Tim Atkin, I mean, but he doesn't, he doesn't taste blind. He tastes, he tastes sighted. So, I mean, that already brings a, a taint of uh, a brand awareness into those scores. And um, obviously scores is uh, the objective um, number is very different to wine 
being a subjective experience. I mean, what you think is is 97 and a fantastic wine, I might slightly disagree. I don't think we're going to be violently indifferent in opinion, but there will be enough of a difference to, to sort of almost ignore one of the other scores depending on our subjective opinions. And I don't think that blind tasting is, is the way that wine is, is, is valued by, by the market. I mean, you, look, I mean, you use that uh, Romani Conti example. That's not because one did better in blind tasting. It's because one's DRC and one's not. You know, that's <laughs> it. All I'm trying to say is that the point of the blind tasting and the score in that context is that we need to eliminate the question of whether the one wine is better than the other. So when a wine, when two wines have got the same score and are generally, I'm using score then as a proxy yes. for perceived quality, yes. independent of the label. Yes. Once then, then the reason is the label. If mm. we've agreed that the wines are equally good, then the label is the problem. Yes. And the label here means the brand, it means the country brand, it means the area of origin, it means the international, it's a bunch of other factors. And I'm with you. And no, you know, Tim is perfectly entitled to taste cited. Mm. Um, I think that certainly, and we, we, we won't land up talking about wine, I do everything blind. Mm. The point about doing it blind is that there are plenty of sources people can go to for sighted tastings. Yes. The world is full of them, including their own, their own view. When somebody says, I'm serving you a bottle of X, you already know what to expect in your mind. Mm-hmm. But the point about blind tasting is that it's an opportunity of stripping mm-hmm. the brand from the content of the bottle. Yeah. And once you've done that, you're on your own. It's, you know, it's like giving an architect a spec for a house mm-hmm. and saying, I want four bedrooms all on suite. I want this, I want that. And he produces a drawing. You say, but that's not the house I want to live in. Yeah. It's met your spec, but it doesn't touch the chords of your heart. I get that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I think we're furiously agreeing with each other here a little bit. Um, yeah. And if you use the, the Dimmersdale Sauvignon Blanc uh, example, I mean, let's just say that wine, I know the winery is in Durbanville Hills, but I'm assuming the wine is a, a Western Cape WO wine. If, I'd be if, very surprised if it wasn't at that price. <laughs> yes, exactly. But if um, let's just say um, in terms of uh, uh, blind tasting and you had two Sauvignon Blancs, both, um, you know, 89, 90, 91 points, and one was revealed as being Dimmersdale and one was being revealed as a Ibn Saadi uh, wine, I can tell you that, the, I mean, and you're obviously going to be very aware of this, the, the prices are going to be very, very different. Sure. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine because yeah. the market's made the call. Yes. You, and that goes for all wine everywhere in the world at yeah. any one time. Yeah. Um, and when you arrive in a country where you know nothing at all about the wines, and that may never happen to you, but it happens to me more often than you think, land up in, um, in Burma, in Myanmar, and have some of the local Pinot, Pinot Noir or Shiraz, I promise you it wasn't on your radar screen until that moment, yeah. or even... <laughs> Landing up in Turkey, in Macedonia, in Slovenia, you may know one or two wines. You really finally don't even know the varieties in many cases. Finally, you have to judge the wine on the amount of pleasure it gives you. And when you hear that that wine is going to cost $100 or $20, you may shy away from the idea of $100 because you don't know enough about the wine. 
Yes. In other words, you're not able to compete with what the other buyers are prepared to pay because you don't enjoy the same access to the connotative rather than the denotative value of the wine. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if, if you're drinking the wine and you don't know who Evan Sardi is, you don't pay, pay extra for that privilege. You, you just, no, exactly. Just, yeah. and <laughs> in a completely neutral sense, I landed up closer to 20 than 10 years ago at a wine show and had my first exposure to Georgian wine, um, Clevery made, etc., etc. I thought they were quite fun, quite interesting. I'm not totally appalled by oxidative winemaking, etc., etc., even though it was far less fashionable in those days. When the guy said to me, you know, this stuff's $25 a bottle, X works, um, I said, there's no snowball hope and hell that they're going to sell in South Africa at those prices. Hmm. But um, they've been selling in London. So, you know, it is what people, it's no different, let's be really rude, than the old cigarette ads. You're either a Marlboro man and, or you identify with the Marlboro man, so you decide that Marlboro is your brand, or you see yourself as um, Rothmans or Peter Stuyvesant or Gitan. It's about your identification with the content of the bottle. Yes, no, absolutely. In terms of the, the smaller producers, in terms of volume, trying, uh, charging uh, uh, higher and higher amounts for their wines, there's been more and more of those in South Africa. I mean, there's been more and more of those um, over the last five years, maybe even back to 10 years, but certainly in the last five years. Do you think that um, that's a dangerous game for these guys to play? Or do you think that the, um, uh, the Darwinian effect that you mentioned earlier will, will start to take effect at a higher rate? Dar- Darwin, managed, Darwin will manage it for them. Dar- Darwin pretty much in the midst of a meteor hitting Earth in the form of COVID. Yes. In other words, the, the great extinction, and there will be a component of great extinction to this, will certainly play a part. Those that emerge, having sustained those prices and having sold their stock, mm. will be much stronger and they will be encouraged to carry on doing exactly that because... Um, but surely, I mean, they're, 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 they're a little bit more protected because they've got, they're less reliant on turnover and they have a higher margin um, than guys that are, the Dimmersdale guys that need economy of scale and, and you know, the constant um, cash flow that, that low margin goods need. Would they be, would you think that they might be a little bit uh, more at risk in terms of this uh, meteor than COVID-19, as you quite rightly put it? Um, I think some of them will be at risk, so as so will some of the mid-size and large-size wineries. Mm. So here's the point. I think that consumers, even top-end consumers, are going to battle for the next couple of years. I think that the economic meltdown, the shrinking of the economy, leaves very few people in the same position that they were in six months, nine months ago. Mm-hmm. So discretionary purchasing power is reduced. It doesn't mean people won't make luxury purchases, but fewer of them will make them, which means that there won't be the same pressure on price. And accordingly, these guys may have to offer reductions in price. Mm. Or they may stick to their guns and find that the quantity is small enough that they can get it out. Mm. But there won't be enough for everybody. That I can guarantee. There will be an attrition amongst the small guys. 
if you look at Edema's doll, and I can't speak, I know nothing about his business model, mm. what I can say is this, because there's a lot of bought in fruit, providing he can survive one year of surplus stock, by which I mean that the market is not drawing down what he budgeted for it to draw down, he will readjust his purchases mm. and he will be able to survive accordingly. He'll source more of his fruit from his own property, less from other, etc., etc. So for all of these people, it's about seeing out the cash crunch. And then if your brand is strong enough and you make the right strategic decisions, you can continue. Maybe you won't make the same amount of money, but he, as an example, has the economies of scale, but if he's shrinking his shopping, he loses some of the economy of scale, but he's also not under the same pressure to discount for supermarkets. So mm. finally, there's an equilibrium for everybody and on the way, it is those who are most overextended or have been overly optimistic by too much yeah. that feel it worse than the others. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would think that Dimmersdale, the, the highest sort of material value is not the grapes. It's actually sort of the bottle and the packaging and the label and, and the, the capsule. Um, so, the, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard for them to sell empty bottles if they've got big stock. Um, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a curious one and only time will tell. I'm very conscious of your time and we've been going for an hour and 45 and I don't want to steal too much more of your time. Um, that went quickly. Um, but maybe chat about what you're drinking um, South African wine-wise currently um, and what are, you buy what are you buying in terms of you, do, you, do you buy wine to sell it and do you drink mature wine more often than not or do you drink uh, a balance of both? I uh, generally drink mature wines. Um, I taste young wine. Mm -hmm. um, and after a day of tasting, um, when I come home and Janice says, just because you've been tasting all day doesn't mean that I don't want a glass of wine with my dinner. Mm. And at that point, I want something that's different from what I've been tasting all day. So my instinct is always um, to, um, to, you know, for drinking purposes, to move towards more mature wines. And mm. I suppose mature wines are generally 10 to 30 years old as opposed to three to five years old, which puts me under some pressure in terms of South African wine. Mm -hmm. um, the older South African wines that I have I, and I buy up cellars whenever I can, I keep for things like those old wine tasting. So I don't knock them off as often as I would like mm -hmm. um, because that stash is now ever reducing. And I think that the golden era, which we haven't even talked about, which is sort of, pre the late 70s. Some of those wines are fading, but they were fabulous. The 74s in good condition are extraordinary. So were the 76s. I quite like 75, 73s. And by 78, 79, we start watching the industry change its style. So wherever I have really nice old South African wines, I nurture them. I think the 80s and 90s were a bit of a desert. So not a hell of a lot of wines that have survived are necessarily that interesting. And now they're kept for old wine tastings where the rule is the red has to be 25 or more. So for my South African wine drinking, I've been laying in, I've been laying in a lot of stuff from the El Heights. I've been laying in quite a lot of stuff from the Mother News as an example. Mm -hmm. Don't have enough wine from Evan. It's a 
it's a fault that's getting harder and harder to rectify. I buy bits and pieces. I have some Thorn and Daughter wines. I uh, like Richard Kershaw's wines. I mean, you can go through a long list. But I buy those wines, and because I don't like drinking young wine, I drink them very infrequently. And because they don't want to drink young wine, comes with a sting in the tail as well, which is if you do drink it young, then you never get it at its peak. Mm. Um, so, you know, I want to taste a Kershaw Chardonnay when it's at least 10 years old mm-hmm. um, because that's when I like drinking white burgundy. And if we do think that these wines are, are performing in that same context, then at least six to eight years old is a minimum for drinking as opposed to for tasting. I get to taste them often enough. I'm not frightened that they're going over the hill. So that's the one half. In terms of international wines, I'm completely promiscuous. I drink whatever is interesting and appealing at the time. So in lockdown, I've had one Ridge Santa Cruz. I've had a La Sol from Craggy Range. I've had a Brunello. I've had a Grand Reserva from Rioja. I've had um, quite a lot of Bordeaux, oddly enough. And just because it's been quite cold, less Burgundy than I might otherwise have had. Mm. But almost invariably, these are wines that are 15 to 25 years old. Yep. Um, because that's my window for drinking. No, fair enough. Um, you've mentioned, or you've referenced Bordeaux and Burgundy. It is a wine uh, discussion after all. Um, yeah. <laughs> what about the South African equivalents? Um, South African Cabernet? What's the... What's the current what's the, take on that? Fabulous cab. Um, in fact, I think our cabinets are often better than our Bordeaux blends. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, there's any number of reasons for that, of which I think that the Merlot is not always as good as the cabinet, so it lets it down. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've still got as a name, I think we produce really interesting cab franc. Yes. But when you make a really good Cab Franc, you generally don't want to lose it in a blend. Mm. Um, so until we are confident enough about our Cab Franc to make sure the Cab Franc that goes into the blend isn't letting it down. But I think we make really, really good Bordeaux blends, and we talked about Canoncourt, which was an obvious. I think there are vintages of Mirlist, which are sublime. Or Rubicon. Yeah. Or the Cabernet or both. Well, both. I was talking about the Bordeaux blends there. Yeah. I think the problem with Merlist, no one ever says it, is that it has constantly, for me, there are erratic corky closure issues okay. with the wines. But when you have a really good bottle, it's sublime. So there is a good Bordeaux blend, which is always better than the single varietal, because the single varietal is offered, in a sense, as the lesser wine. Canon Corp Cab, for me, is a wine that I'm just as happy to you know, to age and drink. I've got old canoncos, lots of, not lo- not enough of, but lots of. Mm-hmm. And um, there the cab certainly shows that we make lovely cabernet. I think that one of the problems of managing our cabernet is, as an industry, is that very fine line where you keep the freshness without it being too leafy and without it getting stressy. So I don't like it when our cabs have to get to 14 and a half to get rid of the leafiness because they are, first of all, too alcoholic 
And secondly, they have lost a little bit of that freshness. When they're on the money, and I do think that that is Stellenbosch's real strength as much as anything is CAD. I think we can do it, and I think that is where we play the border game very well. When it comes to Burgundy, which is Pinot and Chardonnay, I think that we are definitely getting a whole lot better. I think that um, we, and, and, and for different reasons. So I think that there are some old favourites, the Hamilton Russells, the Bouchard Finlayson's, where the vineyards <clears throat> are old, but sometimes also virused. Yes. Um, and that has an impact partly on quality, partly on stylistics. Mm. Um, so you don't necessarily get the same purity of fruit, but you get a lot more texture. And we're seeing more and more very fine pinots. What I'm not seeing, and it's because I think, firstly, the vineyards still are quite young, and we haven't got enough older bottles to see this, is we are not seeing wines that have the mid-palate intensity or complexity or layering of, say, Cote de Nuit. And I'm going to be quite specific about that in the sense that even the best of Cote de Bone Pinots, even at their peak, um, have, a, have a charm but also a slight simplicity. Mm. So a Bone Premier Cru from the very best um, is a lovely wine, 15 to 25 years old. You, it's delicious. It's perfumed. It's spicy. But it doesn't have that inner core that I think is the measure of great Pinot. And I don't think we're seeing any of that yet in South Africa, but that's about too soon. When it comes to Chardonnay, on the other hand, and Jancis, who judged a couple of times at Trophy Wine Show, once wrote about, I think, some older Chamonix, which were absolutely fantastic. She said, nowhere else except Burgundy would you get Chardonnay of this age with this complexity and definition. I think we make extraordinary Chardonnays. I think they won't have the longevity of great Burgundy, but frankly, who cares? Um, but I do think that they go very comfortably, the best sites from that primary citrus vinified style where you can taste the work of the cask and the winemaking to a purity and meatiness, a real detail and internal textural quality. Hmm. I think that we can make Chardonnays that rival the best in the world. Yeah, super interesting. Perfect. Well, that's um, almost two hours, Michael. That's fine by. I'm reluctant to, uh, to keep you longer, but uh, maybe uh, I can res reserve the right to, uh, to interrogate you further on, on one or two points that we didn't try uh, touch. I mean, those, okay. the, wine, yeah. the, the wines of the 60s and 70s, I mean, you have a, um, you're probably one of the most well-tasted uh, people in the world of older South African wines. So I'm certainly curious to, to delve into that, uh, that particular part of your brain and your, and your experience. So, Happy to do it any time, yeah. Perfect. Well, in, in, uh, until then, thank you very much, Michael. Um, thank you for your time and I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing what you can do in terms of editing out the work. <laughs> I think okay. we, got, we, we get a good six or seven minutes out of that, I think. <laughs> good luck. Okay, cheers.